This is Intelligence Everywhere, where we chat with leaders across the tech world who are building the next generation of intelligence services and devices that will transform our lives at home, at work, and on the go. I'm your host, Rishi Kaitan. Today, we're talking with a good friend of mine, Sriram Thodla. Sriram is a senior director at Samsung, driving efforts around Bixby Intelligence Services and SmartThings, which is Samsung's brand of IoT devices. What makes Sriram so unique is that he's an engineer, a designer, and a strategist all in one. Throughout his career, he's had meaningful experience in each of those disciplines. As a result, he thinks much deeper about the user experience uh, than other strategists I've talked to. He truly starts with the user need and works backwards. In this interview, we talk about assistance products, smart home, and AR. Without further ado, my conversation with Sri Ram Thodla. Sri, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rishi. I remember meeting you for the first time freshman year at Cal in the dorms. We were on the same floor. Doesn't feel that long ago, but I guess it was a it's <laughs> good, good that we looked the same as we did back. At, I know, right? right? Yeah, I was just thinking that. <laughs> you know, I think we could we could do we could be doing a lot yeah, worse. Exactly. So uh, anyway, great to have you here. Appreciate you taking the time out of your weekend to to chat. Um, maybe real quick for for the audience, um, a little bit about who you are and what you spend your time doing uh, these days, and uh, maybe a little bit like how you how you got here. Sure. Yeah. Um, so Sri Ram. I work at Samsung, uh, Samsung Electronics America, uh, out of the Mountain View office, and I'm our business lead for Samsung's emerging AI and AR services, specifically Bixby Voice and Bixby Vision. Um, and so I manage every, pretty much all aspects of the North America service, which includes um, the overall business, the P&L, the product roadmaps, I work with the engineering teams, the marketing teams. Uh, the launch teams, the customer service teams to manage quality of service, uh, continuously improve. There's a lot of improvements to be made. Uh, understand where there are uh, issues that we might need fixing. Work with the um, Viv teams that are part of our core platform. So a lot of different teams are involved with mm-hmm. the services. And so I uh, coordinate with all of them. I have two team members uh, that are focused on, one is focused on Bixby Voice and one is focused on Bixby Vision. And so uh, together we kind of run the service in North America. I've been here for about, at Samsung for about five years, been doing this current job for about a year and a half. And uh, uh, before this, I was working at a group called Product Innovation Team, which was much more focused on a 12 to 24 month window Mm -hmm. product, uh, new category innovation. Uh, So I started off with Smart TV and then started getting into Smart Home um, and started then expanding that into more AI and IoT in general. Uh, So kind of been focused on new category and new product emerging uh, areas uh, at Samsung. And then my background is in computer science. You and I share that at, at Berkeley. Um, did a startup came, uh, coming out of Berkeley, then went into, I uh, became an analyst for a while, went and got my master's in design thinking, uh, was a consultant for four years, worked on new product innovation, and then came into Samsung. So a um, combination of technology, design, business roles. Which is what I do anyway today. Yeah, kind of, <laughs> kind of worked that well. All right, so technology. A, yeah, so technology. Obviously, there's a lot of different things we could be talking about, but uh, a couple of things, um, a couple of areas specifically that I was hoping to chat about with you uh, t- today is um, one is just like um, sort of AI-driven assistance, and specifically, I know you're spending a lot of time on Bixby. Mm-hmm. Second thing is smart home, and third is. Uh, I know you're spending time on AR these days as well. So yeah. those are like the three big buckets uh, you know, sure. to chat about. And obviously those are, uh, you know, big buckets on its own, but maybe starting with uh, assistance specifically, mm-hmm. like what are the pillars of a great assistant product? Interesting. Um, so let me caveat that by saying that I don't think we have really a good assistant today. Uh, like many things, uh, I think we have an aspirational naming, and the reality is far from what you would or anybody would call an assistant. And I think a lot of us working in the field are generally aware that the word assistant is really something that we want to 
that we use as a way to simplify what it is that we provide from an AI point of view, but what we have today are not really truly assistants. But having said that, I think every assistant, uh, for it to be compelling and, and easy to use and, and useful, frankly, uh, has to be able to understand you well. I think there's just some baseline performance, whether that's the ASR accuracy rate or whether it's language mm -hmm. support, fundamentally needs to be able to understand what you're saying uh, and the myriad of accents by which you might say it. Uh, the second thing is it has to be able to cover a wide enough variety of use cases that you feel that it's practically useful every day. Uh, we find that people who use Bixby every day tend to be much more, find it much more useful, tend to use it more frequently. Uh, and if so, if you can't find that everyday usefulness, mm -hmm. then you struggle to maintain a relationship with the, with the consumer, with the, with folks who are using the assistant. And then lastly, I think what we are trying to all aspire to is beyond the basic use cases that we everybody supports, the timers, the alarms, the weather, the news, the you know, the basic things that an assistant supports, I think there should be a couple of advanced use cases that really make a difference in your life, right? And when I say that, it, you wouldn't really be able to do uh, what you do without those capabilities. Mm. So I'll give you an example. Um, for us, you know, and it, it differs for each person. I personally find that the use case for me around parking lots and parking spaces is the thing that I find myself using all the time. So it's not something you would ever find advertised, but the ability to say, here's where I parked and have that record automatically where you parked is actually something I use every day. Mm. And it's a unique use case as far as uh, when we started, it was unique and I'm, right now it's not anymore. But those are the kinds of examples I mean where little, small little things that go beyond the everyday and the obvious that really make it yours. So, you know, performance to start off with, everyday usefulness, and then making it yours in some shape or form, mm. whether that's a, a quick command, a feature we supported when we launched, whether it's some kind of personalization of but maybe it's the brands you prefer or the retailers you prefer, some level of personalization to you, I think are elements of what make a good assistant. So you could call that knowing you, mm -hmm. uh, understanding you, you know, uh, those kinds of um, characteristics. Yeah, that's I like how you I like how you break that down. Um, so I mean, a, a table stakes it sounds like is having first of all uh, one ability just to understand you, right, uh, in terms of your voice recognition, but also having it it solves some everyday need that you have, and then it sounds like that third bucket is kind of these unexpected slash yeah. personalization, kind of those wow things yeah. that keep you wanting to become a more advanced and get more into the product. Yeah, it's one of the things that I think we also, it's the difference between Google Assistant, I would say, uh, or Apple Siri or Samsung's Bixby and your Bixby, your mm. Assistant and your Siri. Uh, there is the generic version that is true for everybody. You pick up, I pick up your phone and I can do pretty much the same commands I've always done. But those unique personalized use cases make them uniquely yours right. and you can't find them anywhere else. And that's really where we see a lot of interest and passion from our consumer base is when they're able to customize, when they're able to personalize, when they feel like the conversations with the assistant have led to something more uh, and that every other device doesn't have that because mm -hmm. it is theirs. Then we get into some really interesting areas and that's worth exploring you know, much further along in terms of the types of use cases and the case kinds of partnerships and the capabilities we want to introduce is a lot of it is going to be focused around that modality, knowing you a lot more, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so to, I guess specifically like Bixby um, sort of is sort of Samsung's, I don't know if it's fair to call it a newcomer oh, yeah. uh, to, the, to the market. Like how does the philosophy of Bixby compare to uh, some of the assistant products you mentioned, Alexa, Google? Yeah, Samsung? yeah. We, I mean, we knew from the very beginning that we were coming in a couple years after some of the assistants had already been introduced. Uh, and what we also knew is that we wanted to have a unique value proposition for Bixby that wasn't about a general assistant. Uh, as we all know, Google does search really well. And we partner with them closely around search, right? Mm -hmm. Across all of our product ranges, Google and Samsung are, are uh, cooperating. And so it didn't make any sense to focus heavily on a search or general Q&A assistant is how we call it internally. And so what we wanted to do was to focus Bixby much more on your everyday interactions with our devices. Just start there. I and mean, we mm -hmm. have to start somewhere. Let's start by making those everyday interactions with our devices simpler and easier. And 
over time, we'll learn more about you and then extend that into the set of activities that you want to be able to do or to enable through your devices that make your life easier, et cetera. That's the reason why you're buying them in the first right. place. And so when we started Bixby uh, about a year and a half ago now, it's been a, it's fast how it's funny how quickly it's uh, the time has flown. We very much were looking at ways in which to simplify the uh, app overload, interface overload that we're all facing across all of these mm-hmm. connected devices, right? The average user has somewhere around 150 apps, uh, you know, number of features buried within many menu trees on an average Android phone or an Apple phone is around 20,000. The average probably is using about 5% of them. So you're not really getting as much as you can out of the devices you already own. Right. Why not help use AI to expose those capabilities? And then let's see what else we can get, you know, how else we can help you uh, across not just your mobile phone, but also your uh, refrigerator and your TV and your appliances and et cetera. So that was the, uh, the idea behind Bixby was to use up AI to specifically make interactions with your devices simpler and easier. And it's continued to evolve uh, over time. We just launched the new Bixby, which is much more capable in understanding complicated queries and custom, you know, um, uh, multi-part queries where you can say, you know, find me flights and book me a flight, uh, or, you know, remind me to uh, order, you know, X, Y, and Z. So it allow it supports more complicated uh, commands. And I so see. it's starting to get more sophisticated along the understanding part, the ASR part. Um, so we, we have a, a lot of work to do, but the progress in a year and a half has been quite significant. And if you think about it, Samsung's been a software, a hardware company for a long time. And so Bixby is a software capability, and it's uh, it's taken a while to get uh, going, and it's but the the roadmap looks very interesting and very promising. Gotcha. Yeah. Where is that? Just out of curiosity, the the team, uh, especially on the software and AI side, are uh, how much is it, folks here in California versus? It's a global uh, effort. Korea? Yeah, Bixby is a global effort. It's a global service. Uh, it is available in a number of other countries. Uh, and there's a continued focus on global expansion. The teams are in Korea, in India, in Mountain View, uh, and probably in Canada and a number of other places as well. So Bixby is definitely a global service development effort. Well, speaking of global, um, how how much do assistant products like Bixby need to be localized for different cultures? That's a good question. Uh, we are finding that uh, we definitely see unique use cases and uses of Bixby, let's just say between Korea and the US. The types of commands, the types of integrations, the types of services they use are different from where what we see in the US. There's a lot more focus on pay, there's a lot more quick command usage and mm. customization. Uh, and so it's interesting to see assistance and how they shape and uh, react or how people are using them in different cultures, I should say. So uh, to that extent, each of the local teams does work with the core global product teams to make sure that there is some regional uh, specific optimizations. Okay. Whether that might be utterances that are you know specific for the language or for the accent, there's always things that we need to focus on regionally. Uh, but Bixby as an intelligence service has to have a common core, has to have a common platform to collect that intelligence mm-hmm. across not just your interactions uh, on a mobile device, but across a whole bunch of other devices. And so there's definitely a common cloud core and uh, a number of regional specific optimizations that are done. Have you seen any um, sort of propensity to adopt assistance uh, between different co- different uh, cultures? Mm. Um, I have not, I cannot speak to it from our experience yet. Um, no, I, I don't think that I can speak to the adoption rates between different cultures, but that's an interesting question. I know that when we were looking at adoption rates, let's say for applications, that we found that certain parts of Europe were very much uh, against adopting smartphones and apps uh, during the feature phone to smartphone shift. I do wonder if that translates into a current uh, preference for or lack of preference for digital assistance. But yeah, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I'm trying to think myself if if any historical uh, examples or products may be relevant, but I can't really think of uh, I can't think of any. Yeah, I, <clears throat> you know, I, I yeah, it's worth looking into. I if I there's already lots of voice. I mean, I shouldn't say lots of. There are already voice assistants in Asian markets in China, for example. Uh, we have Bixby in Korea, and so I believe is Google Assistant. I could be wrong about that. Uh, so we already have examples of 
services that have multiple geographies. Uh, but I don't know that I c- that we've done any consistent studies around adoption or preference mm-hmm. of assistance, um, you know, generally as a as a general research subject. We haven't. I don't think we've looked into that yet. Yeah, one thing that comes to mind is like uh, in China, WeChat, right? Like through WeChat, uh, it's amazing. Like a, there's so many services that you can um, interact yeah. with and procure the super through app. WeChat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's to a level of uh, that doesn't exist certainly in like the U.S. right, uh, and I think part of it is just because there is no sort of one ubiquitous messenger product. Uh, maybe maybe WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger is approaching that in the U.S. Yeah. But, um, but you know, in terms of like that kind of you having a, a conversation sort of interaction with a service, right? Like that, I feel like maybe in China that exists, but again, that's all chat based. It's not actually a yeah. voice assistant. Yeah, and there's not, and there's no, you know, I think voice is a component of the assistant, right? Mm-hmm. So I think if we separate out the assistant from voice, I'd be a much happier person because I think assistant as a value proposition is very interesting. Mm, I see. The interaction and the interface modalities to that assistant capability does not have to be just voice. And in fact, on a mobile device, frequently you find that the people will use, tend to use voice in the car, okay? Uh, at home and rarely on the go. It's not as socially acceptable to start speaking to your phone out loud in public. And so right. voice doesn't always make sense. Right. So there are social factors that drive the usage of voice. And so for me, assistant is more interesting than the voice part. Got it. Uh, so whether it's chatbot or voice or whatever, you know, touch, um, that's less interesting. And what's more interesting is what does it mean to be an assistant and how does an assistant help you and is it your assistant and what are those elements of personalization and how do you want to communicate to this thing and does it have a persona or not? And those those are all the design decisions that go into an assistant. I think those are really interesting questions. Yeah, that's actually a great point. I almost feel like um, maybe it's the new form factor or the new category in sort of the smart speaker that sort of came, uh, you know, came onto the market, what, maybe when when Alexa... Three years ago. You know, maybe two, three years ago. All of a sudden, I feel like the assistant, all that sort of the buzz around assistant now shifted to voice. Whereas prior to that, I mean, I remember when I was at Google about five, six years ago, and Google Now had come out, right? Google Now is like, people were like, oh, wow, this is amazing, right? It's telling me when to leave to catch my restaurant or whatever, uh, you know, booking... And um, and that had nothing to do with voice, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and then people exactly. were talking about like message. I think even there was a time when Facebook Messenger just launched their API. People were like, "Oh wow, you can launch like a chat, like chatbots, yep. right?" Those were yep. like maybe that's the future, right? And then um, and then there's still still some of that too. You know, a lot of buzz around that, but voice. I feel like these days, like everyone's crazy about voice, and I think you're you're spot on that. Like voice, I think is a component of yeah. assistant. It's not necessarily the interaction point, uh, main interaction point. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think, uh, you know, Alexa and Amazon's Echo have done a lot to bring assistance back from being buried inside of a, a cool feature within a mobile phone into a much more accessible feature for the entire family. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a huge deal, right? It is a huge deal that people who did not have smartphones now have access to an assistant through a accessible device, that an affordable device, that can be inside of you know any every room potentially, right? So that's a huge deal, uh, and so that has driven the popular popular access to voice and the you know, popular awareness of assistance. And so there, rightfully so, is a lot of focus on voice uh, and voice assistance. But for those of us who've been working on assistance for a long time, as you mentioned, but now uh, know that it is just one element of the longer story of what is an assistant. How do you interact with this assistant? When does it make sense to use voice versus touch versus um, chatbots versus whatever it might mm-hmm. be? So given that ultimately there's this entire assistant definition that we're pursuing and continuing to drive more sophistication around, and there is this interface, set of interface patterns that we're trying to define for intelligence, I think those are two entirely, uh, I shouldn't say entirely, they're related but very interesting fields on their own. Mm-hmm. So how do you interact with intelligence? Is such a big topic and it's such an interesting topic and has so many implications from a design, uh, cognitive science, behavioral science point of view that you could spend a lot of time just thinking about what are the what's the most meaningful interface to an intelligence and how do you interact with it in a way that 
uh, allows you to feel reassured, allows you to know what you, that you are getting the information, that you trust that information. There's trust, there's uh, common usage, the mm -hmm. ability to accessibility, there's all of these design patterns that have existed forever on the web that have now has to be applied to AI. So designing for AI is its own thing, right? Yeah. Uh, and then you have this, what is assistant, which is another big question. And what does it mean to really uh, help someone? And what are the, what's the level to which you need to be able to uh, do things on your own? Like duplex from Google, for example. A great example of where you could argue, hey, listen, the last mile is the set of small businesses that are not API enabled and therefore an assistant to truly be helpful has to be able to interact with humans at some point. Right? And I think that was a really compelling demo right? from, uh, from what Google showed. So there's, uh, anyway, those are two big questions that we do, uh, that I love spending time mm -hmm. on, uh, because they, they don't, uh, they, they result in some open-ended questions as to where can assistants live and how can you interact with assistants that go beyond our current state uh, of mobile phones and smart speakers. Those are just the very, very, very beginning uh, elements of you know, intelligent assistance. And so, uh, I, you know, that's where I, I get very excited about the space overall. Not Got where it. it is today, but where it is going. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, so on this theme then of uh, assistance sort of being bigger than just, you know, your mobile phone and your smart speakers mm -hmm. or, you know, touch points. Um, I know you spent many years thinking about smart home mm -hmm. and um, I was kind of reflecting on uh, sort of what I've seen ha sort of happen in smart home. And obviously there was like Nest, right? I feel like that for mainstream America may have been sort of the first killer yeah. app into smart home. And, and I think kind of opened people's minds around um, how devices around them can be intelligent and sort of improve their day-to-day -day life. Um, like what's, what, like what's, how has, I guess, smart home What's evolved? going on? Yeah, with what's smart going home? on smart home? Like <laughs> Yeah. Can you catch us up a little bit on what you yeah, think Yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, you know it's interesting. Uh, I think I told you this little story. Of, I've been to CES now probably 11 years running, and every wow. year there's a new technology that's kind of introduced. And then the next year you see whether that's made it into the, you know, whether it's continued part of the hype cycle or it's kind of died out. Hmm. And smart home and IoT were probably the topic of, uh, yeah, still are the topic of CES. Uh, and smart home specifically took off for a while. It is less on the hype cycle right now in the news as much as assistant. I hear a lot more about assistance from the media and the press, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm seeing a lot more product announcements and releases when it comes to smart home, uh, and a lot more adoption. So it kind of felt like it's, um, you know, gotten to a maturity level within uh, the consumer base where people understand it, see the value in it and are buying it. So smart home, uh, you know, has been around for a very long time. Uh, as a concept goes back all the way to Jetsons and we're kind of in love with this idea of a home that, you know, automates and simplifies our lives, mm -hmm. uh, keeps us safe and secure. And so there's a number of core value propositions for smart home that were really around, um, you know, peace of mind, um, you know, saving money and you know, saving me money. This is the energy thermostat kind of value proposition and um, entertaining me, some connected appliance, connected entertainment kind of scenarios. So we've seen, uh, and we knew this when we got into the business, that safety and security were probably going to be the leading yeah. entry points into mm -hmm. the connected home. That was true, but we also saw lighting within entertainment becoming another very, very compelling entry point, mm -hmm. um, where you would have people come in with just the ability to want to turn their lights on or off. Uh, and as frivolous as that sounds, that became an entry point into this idea of a larger set of Oh, well, if I can do it in my living room, then I can do it in my bedroom. Suddenly I need a hub. There's more devices connected. Well, if I do that, then maybe I want it also. And so that, that kind of mental storyline yeah. uh, resonated quite well. And so we saw safety and security as an entry point and lighting as an entry point. And those were kind of how we approached the market. Just as a quick recap, Samsung acquired SmartThings. Um, that was probably more than three years ago now. And that is now our default platform for all things smart home. Yeah. Right? Uh, and we've continue to maintain its openness. We've continued to add new third-party devices onto the SmartThings ecosystem or the Works with SmartThings program. Um, and that continues to be the, the core of all of our smart home offerings. So all of our products, Samsung-branded products, are, of course, smart thing, works with, work with SmartThings. And there's a, a large number of third-party devices and manufacturers that also work with SmartThings. And so I would argue that's probably one of the top kind of smart home platforms out there uh, if you want to get into it. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so smart home is gone. So we started off with platforms, hubs, and sensors. 
And I think the smart speaker market really did uh, a number on it because, you know, it <laughs> solved the interface problem um, for smart home, which was, sure, I can have a connected lights light, but it's no simpler than a light switch. And so why does an app in a phone offer me a better solution for a connected home than just the light switches I already have, mm -hmm. which is a frequent question we would always get from uh, everybody that was considering, you know, because the price was expensive, right? So cost of entry, a couple of hundred bucks. Value proposition, convenience, sure, but a light switch is not inconvenient. So what are we really offering there? Um, and I think what smart speakers did was to be able to say, turn on the lights, turn off the lights in my living room, to be mm -hmm. able to use voice as an interaction methodology towards the home, solve two problems. One, it gave smart speakers a purpose outside of just weather news, timers, alarm. We found that when Amazon supported SmartThings partnership, we've heard that the number of utterances on the Echo went up, uh, you know, at least, I think there was another five incremental commands that were set per day Wow, that were just IoT smart home related, which makes sense. Yeah, You get up in the morning, you're going to use that a lot. So if you're looking at it from an activity point of view, smart home use cases drive up the usage of smart speakers uh, when they're paired together. Uh, so smart speakers and smart home related, what we've seen is the evolution of smart home devices from being Nest-like, independent to platform, smart things uh, works with Nest, uh, the Google Home ecosystem, and now we've started to see and continue to see additional endpoint devices get smarter, more intelligent. The the Ring doorbells of the world and the Arlo cameras of the world and and all of those. So um, that industry continues to get smarter, get better with better devices. All of the things we expected to see a couple of years ago are still happening. Things like builder relationships. So. Instead of buying it after you buy a house and retrofitting, mm -hmm. why not have it as part of the purchase of the house? Uh, we're seeing the the um, you know value proposition around insurance and reduction of insurance costs if you have a connected home solution, uh, a DIY home security. We announced a partnership with ADT. Those are those are big trends. So all of the trends that we identified maybe three years ago are continuing down that path of helping you be more safe and secure, giving you more flexibility in the choices and endpoint devices that that do that mm -hmm. right through DIY security driving the entertainment use cases and continuing to work with the uh, whether it's smart speakers, smart lighting, TV, smart TVs, being part of that entertainment ecosystem. Uh, what we haven't seen yet is probably the bigger opportunity, probably what I call a trillion dollar service economy that intersects the mm. home, right? So yeah, you automate these things and that's great. And you connect these things to services like home security and that's the first step. But there's a lot more services that intersect your home. And I think... For folks in the smart home industry, the opportunities around how do you connect, manage, and transact against these trillion-dollar services that intersect any given household, right? So I'm talking about everything from repair, maintenance, dog walking, delivery, um, you know, grocery drop-offs. Every single thing you can think about that goes into a household uh, is a is a service that can be managed, that can be transacted, that can be monitored, uh, and and that can drive purchases. And so how do you create a compelling enough smart home offering that allows these larger kind of value-added services to sit on top? And I think we're a couple of years away from that, but that's definitely the direction we're going. Gotcha. Yeah, one thing actually that struck me as uh, pretty fascinating about, um, I think it wasn't this year CES, but last year CES, and I imagine Samsung's probably the booth, uh, continue this theme of around like having all these different appliances. Cause Samsung basically makes everything, right? Like literally everything. I mean, that's, yep. I mean, everything in the house, Samsung makes it right. And they do, I mean, obviously they, they are in many, in probably many of those categories are a category leader, right? So not only making a really good, um, product, uh, but then sort of now there's an opportunity to make each of these devices like a smart and connected. And if you, I mean, I, I guess I think about like Samsung versus, you know, any of the other major assistant uh, players, Samsung's the only one that actually makes the, these devices, right? So Amazon has done like Amazon Alexa voice services and tried to integrate Alexa into these other products, but inherently that's like a, there's a third party yeah, relationship. Absolutely. And so like, um, how much of an advantage do you think it is that Samsung actually is kind of vertically integrated in that? It's huge. That it's huge. It's absolutely huge. And we recognize it from the very beginning that one of the, and it's not just us, right? So internally, it's easy to say, listen, when you look at your product portfolio, when you look at the ways in which you cover across, you know, category leaders in some of these major categories that are in the household, it's, 
it's easy for us to look at that and say this is a strategic asset, a strategic advantage that we can leverage for going into the home, smart mm-hmm. home systems, et cetera. But we also heard this from our consumers and from our customers, right? Saying, hey, Samsung, you have probably the widest pro- you know, portfolio of devices out there. Uh, it, you know, let's, let's make sure they work better together and not only just better together, but let's continue to drive the way that the ecosystem uh, you know, performs, right? So we've seen that for a while. We've, we've continued to drive that. That's why Bixby now is a cross you know, product service. It sits on Family Hub refrigerators and smart TVs. Uh, smart things, as I mentioned, all of our products are smart things enabled mm-hmm. uh, by 2020, um, and a majority of them are already smart things enabled. And so we see the ecosystem being where our strength is, uh, and continuing to drive these services across the ecosystem is going to be our strategic sense. Gotcha. All right, cool. Well, shifting gears, uh, the third thing I was hoping to chat with you about sure. is AR. So oh, I, yes. you know, I know you're spending a good amount of time talk- thinking yes. about AR these days. Like, what's What's been, if you think back like to the last year, I'm sure you've seen a ton of applications of AR on both the consumer and, and mm-hmm. business side. Like what is, what's been some of the most exciting things you've seen that I guess you can talk about? Yeah. So mobile AR is where I focus most of my time. Um, you know, Bixby Vision is a, a service that is embedded within all of our flagship phones, starting with the Samsung S8 okay. uh, that allows intelligence through the camera. So you don't have to download an app you know, in order to be able to translate text, look up images, uh, look up recipes, scan your food for calories, and does a number of different things. So looking at your world more intelligently is something that is already available through most all your Samsung flagship devices. And we see a huge opportunity to continue to drive AR experiences through that portal, through that app, uh, through that use case, right, through the camera. Uh, and in every shape and form to allow you to shop better, to allow you to understand the world around you, to allow you to order and buy things that you see and to be inspired mm-hmm. and to discover. Uh, I think there's so much of the world that we capture through our cameras. Uh, and we've, and those things tend to sit in our galleries. Uh, and maybe occasionally we might post them on social media, or maybe some people do more often than not. But they tend to go on social media. But that the wealth of intelligence that sits there about our interests, our, our preferences, our uh, you know, maybe it's a shopping list that I'm really capturing visually. All of those things uh, can be activated, uh, ultimately using both AR from the, through the camera lens, but also the intelligence piece we talked about earlier with Bixby. And so where I spend a lot of time is trying to understand what are the AR experiences that are going to make you pull out your phone, mm-hmm. right? Because that is still a act, act, a social act that you need to do. You need to pull out your phone to be to have an experience that is worth it, Right. Uh, so what are those experiences? When does it make sense for you to pull out your phone? What are those uh, kinds of capabilities that we need to continue to add to make it more useful every day? Because mm-hmm. we see the same patterns. Everyday utility is going to drive ultimately the uh, long-term relationship to the service. Um, and then what are the intelligent capabilities that we need to embed in other parts of the device to activate these visual images and, and gallery you know, photos that are, are there? So we're looking at both, both sides of the, the coin, which is the capture and the interface and the interaction, mm-hmm. as well as the latent preferences, needs, interests, et cetera, that are, that are uh, being captured. What is the, what is the most popular uh, application of AR today? Well, you could argue that AR gaming is probably the most successful, most widely known use case. Is like Pokemon, Pokemon Go, Go. right, okay. exactly. Uh, you know, but you're starting to see IKEA doing some really interesting things with AR and furniture shopping. So where let me so where we find camera and AR specifically very interesting is where typical searches by text don't make sense. Images help people capture and describe things that are really hard to describe otherwise. Okay. Yeah. And AR AR's value is in envisioning things that are really hard to otherwise envision, right? So how big is this TV on the wall is not a question that you or I can answer by just mm, doing any amount of searching or any right. amount of research. I can take it, you know, the amount of work I need to do to figure out if, a ta- is, if what this TV is going to look like on my wall is quite a bit, right? I need to measure the wall. I need to look at the TV. I need to look at what is mounted, the height. I need to go back. There's a lot of back and forth mm-hmm. between the physical world and the digital world. Uh, the digital world is where the products live. Uh, you know, let's just say that if you're buying through e-commerce, the digital world is where the products live and the physical world is where they're going to live once, once they come into your house. How do you marry those two? And those, that's a very tough problem. Uh, and so that's where AR really comes to life when in more practical matters outside of gaming is um, helping you, ma- you know, so how, envisioning things in your home, 
envisioning things on yourself. What does this look like on me? What would this look like in my house? What would this look like, you know, in this? Uh, and so you can imagine extending that into use cases outside of the individual. What does this look like? You know, what does this building look like in the corner of this block? Or what is, you know, you get the idea. Envisioning, gotcha. the, Im- imagining and envisioning uh, how the physical world exists with the, you know, um, the digital world exists with the physical world is probably one of AR's biggest strengths. Uh, AR entertainment is definitely there. Um, AR gaming uh, is very popular, but I think part of it is not just taking games and, and, and porting them to AR. Social was a huge element of what made Pokemon Go so successful, right? Uh, so if you are going to be pulling it out, pulling out, pulling out your uh, camera and playing a game, ideally you don't want it to be socially isolating. You want it to be socially inviting. Mm-hmm. And so Pokemon Go captured both of those things, right? The ability to play games, but also do it in a very social environment and uh, using your mobile phone. So we think those are elements that make gaming successful. And so we're going to continue to look for ways in which to drive Bixby into that into that those areas. Uh, experiences in general. So I walk into a uh, resort. I walk into any physical space. What can AR do for me that that I can't get you know today? So I think that's another area we're looking at. So we have a lot of different places we want to take mm-hmm. it. Uh, today, of course, Bixby uh, also helps you shop. So there's the commerce angle. So take a picture of the things you are interested in, and if we, one of our partners carries it, you can transact and buy it through Bixby Vision. Um, so we'll continue to drive and expand on those categories, uh, on those experiences, I should say. So shopping, gaming, you know, general experiences and entertainment experiences, I think they're all areas of opportunity for AR. Gotcha. I really like how you put that. Uh, so the camera is a way to capture... Um, sort of real-life phenomena that's kind of hard to describe in words, and AR is a way to envision um, digital uh, concepts... Yeah, the intersection uh, of the two. ...that are yeah. hard to otherwise uh, express mm-hmm. in in words or other ways. And um, I guess that's that's one thing, actually, I, never, I hadn't really thought about, which is, like, even if you think about, like, an AR device, like HoloLens or something, um, it's... It's uh, it's as much about ca- it's about like overlaying the two, right? It's not just about taking like projecting something onto your uh, the physical world, but at the same time, it, it's doing both, right? It has to capture what's happening exactly. as well as overlay. So it's like exactly. both things. Like AR is actually like both. It's almost like both of those things happening. Yeah, I think that's time. why you see a lot more people bullish about AR than VR nowadays. It's just there's a lot more application. There's a lot more opportunity. There's generally a lot more excitement about the possibilities of AR. VR, don't get me wrong, is incredibly immersive and uh, interesting, and there's a lot of VR use cases. But overall, the market size for AR is bigger than um, VR, and so and that reflects the number of ways in which AR can actually be used. Got it. Well, talking about AR market size, how, how do you? I mean, I've heard a lot of uh, sort of AR or pun, let's say industry pundits talk about how um, AR is going to uh, land in commercial applications before consumer applications like what 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 do you think about that um well i mean so i have a little bit of you know my my sister works at microsoft and she manages hololens and so there's a little bit of a a really you know i I, we spend quite a bit of time talking about mixed reality and ar and vr Uh, there are definitely interesting applications of mr xr let's call it xr for for commercial use and b2b usage but I don't see, I see that the sales cycles are going to be long. I see that the equipment costs are going to be prohibitive for small businesses. And I think the applications are, while interesting, are going to be narrow and smaller in, uh, in volume, which is true for any of those kinds of general industries. So that's, so that's what I think about kind of business use cases, uh, whether it's automotive shop and repair and having all the tools available and seeing the part numbers. You know, you see so many of these examples and use yeah. cases, which are all really cool. But I just don't see it scaling to the level at which a consumer-focused XR application would work, um, simply because of distribution, volume, uh, size of the market. And so I am much more bullish about the consumer uh, XR market than I am about the B2B commercial XR market. You know, it occurs to me uh, one reason why sort of folks may say that it's going to land in commercial first. I think that might be assuming that expensive equipment is involved. Like HoloLens, I don't know how much it's, it's, it's thousands of dollars basically, right? And that's just 
for one pair of glasses and maybe there's other pieces of technology you yeah. need that's complementary to it to solve a particular problem. Okay, yes, if if it is a given that several thousand dollars of equipment is going to be required to, you know, provide a solution, then sure, that probably only makes sense in a enterprise uh, yeah. you know, context. And even in enterprise, I haven't seen it. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I would love to find examples of where there's been a, um, you know, widespread enterprise-wide deployment of an XR headset. I don't personally know of any. doesn't mean that they don't exist. But I haven't heard of those commercial B2B applications scaling, mm-hmm. right? I've seen many, many different companies that have prototyping capabilities with XR. So a lot of it has been adopted by the typical product and design um, groups in these firms as a, a new ways of envisioning products and retail experiences. But I haven't seen it go out into the, let's say, the field sales force or the field tech force mm-hmm. or the maintenance force in big numbers. Uh, and so I, I still struggle to see where the volume is going to come from in, in those markets. Gotcha. I almost wonder if, because um, you think about it like a phone, right? It's, uh, it's, got a, it's got a capture device and it's got a display device, right? Um, and it, everyone has one and it's cheap, right? Uh, versus a pair of mm-hmm. AR glasses, it has a capture and it has a display, but it's a hell of a lot more expensive, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, and nascent. And so I almost wonder if the phone then disrupts the glass. Like, you know, like if people originally thought AR, you think of it more like VR, right? It's yeah. like, okay, it's got to be a pair of glasses. Well, um, if, if, if a phone can deliver a similar experience, maybe, maybe not quite as good, maybe, but if it's... Um, but if it's even close, right, everyone's going to go to this because it's just so much easier to, to build for, to distribute, to sell, etc. I think anybody that is in the hardware business knows how hard it is to get any piece of hardware into a daily usage pattern for a consumer. They don't want to carry, a, you know, people don't want to carry a lot of things with them. Uh, you've seen a consolidation of things, right, that people carry more and more. Uh, so to be able to, to find a new form factor that people are willing to live with every day um, to provide something like an AR use case is going to be very, very challenging because you end up with all of the traditional concerns about how long it's going to last, when do I need to charge it, mm-hmm. if I take it off. So I'll give you an example, an analogy. Wearables, right? Wearables are probably the closest thing, or I should say they've successfully found a, a place in the body of a consumer where they can now, you could probably expect that a, a decent number of consumers have a wearable device. That is technology that they've chosen to wear on their bodies every day, right? Uh, but there's still limitations, right? We still have battery life limitations and charging limitations and all of those things. And you take them off and then it, sometimes it's, you forget to put it back on and then you don't get any of the benefit of that hardware device mm-hmm. in the first place. So to, But nobody will forget their phone when they walk out the door, right? If they do, they'll come back home, they'll right. pick up their phone and they'll right. go back in. So to find something that is as ubiquitous as a phone is very difficult, and so if an AR device is trying to do that, to be there everywhere all the time so that it can be useful for you, that's a pretty tall order. And if so, if you can do that, then it means that it's going to be speci- it's going to be tied to a physical location, whether it's a desk at work or your desk at home, it's going to be t- or some other place that is, you know, uh, maybe it's a entertainment lounge or a theater, right? Physical locations contain these devices. You then go in there to experience something and come out mm-hmm. versus you carrying an AR device or an XR device around with you, which I don't think is going to happen anytime soon. Gotcha. You know, I think, I, I, I think I, I agree with you. I think that makes total sense. And, uh, and I think that's probably one in one way that uh, you know, Pokemon go actually kind of maybe changed. I certainly changed my, the, like how I think about AR actually. Um, because prior to that, you know, I think I'd only really ever seen these sort of, te- you know, sort of futuristic technology demos, products like HoloLens, um, and, or, you know, these sort of like video montages that are made about what the future might look like with AR. But now you see like, wow, and actually this is a really cool application of AR, even though it's a relatively simple application of AR, right? Um, it's, it's, uh, it's. It's on your phone, yeah. and I think like uh, I could certainly imagine, right? Like taking a phone, hold it up to a wall, right? Maybe I'm on Amazon, right? And uh, um, and I'm like, okay, let's let's show this. Pro- let's see what this TV is going to look like on my wall, and it, it might just say, okay, like you know, 
tap a button, it's gonna point it at a wall and it's just gonna like, it'll figure out the distance and it'll project it. And I can literally see what this thing looks like on my wall. And like, I think that um, that feels a lot more feasible and realistic and near term than than me than trying to have to go buy some yeah. glasses and just like right. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't see that happening, right? Um, I don't see the sorry the latter part, which is buying the devices happening. But yeah, the, the former situation, the scenario is exactly what we are looking at: is ways in which the mobile device and mobile AR experience can be practically useful for you every day. And gaming is certainly one of them, but then the shopping experience you described is definitely another. And then there are entertainment experiences beyond just gaming that we think are interesting and compelling as well. Super cool. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm excited to... I mean, I really think like, uh, especially in, when figuring out these sort of new inter, new ways to interact, uh, new sort of paradigms, I think that's... I, f- I feel like, you know, companies that are developing both the hardware and the software and are really good at both... I feel like have it have an edge, right? And so I think that's where the one additional thing I'd say to that is, you know, I think in addition to hardware and software expertise, if a company shows, you know, the ability to understand behavioral design, uh, I don't know, I don't know if there's an existing word for it, but so many of the things we're talking about now involves behavioral change or behavioral modification. Uh, you know, let's say, for example, carrying an additional device around. That is a different behavior. Mm -hmm. Or pulling up your phone to look at the wall, that's a different behavior. And so in addition to the hardware and software, you're designing behavior. And if you can effectively understand the kinds of things that are going to drive those behavioral changes or modifications, then I think you have a much better leg up than if you are a killer software developer or a killer hardware developer or both, but simply don't understand that consumers will not pull something out. So glass is a great example, right? You could argue that glass was a very interesting, ahead of its time form factor, mm-hmm. very small, uh, as probably as discreet as it could get at the time. Uh, and the UI was relatively well done. And yet, from a social, behavioral, cognitive point of right. view, it just completely fails, right? Uh, and it'll find its niche somewhere. It'll find, you know, it'll, it's still living in a lot of different applications in the in uh, enterprise. But there you have the social element, you have the behavioral element that simply didn't work. So in addition to hardware and software, I would argue that behavioral design is probably another element uh, of successful product launches and successful, especially in these emerging areas like AR and XR and all those things. Got it. And I think maybe even circling back to what you said at the beginning of the conversation around like a voice. Um, if you think about voice in the context of just me talking to my phone, well, that in many different contexts is, is, a, is a non-starter. Right? Exactly. You look like an idiot talking exactly. to your phone. Um, but in the context of me at home, like talking to a smart speaker, it feels totally sure. natural, right. right? But like, I think that's where like voice is just one component of the broader assistant. And maybe with AR, it's like, it's a, um, maybe there is a certain use cases where putting on a set of glasses or whether some other device, it makes sense. But if you only think of AR in terms of that context, then it becomes a non-starter in so many different uh, contexts. And so um, I think maybe it's like, think of what's the problem? (laughs) What's the use case? It's just classical, like, you know, user-centric design. Like start with what the user needs to get done and then find the simplest way for them to actually, or the lowest friction way. And I think often it is going to be their, their mobile phone. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, and that's why it's exciting, right? Because you get to you're redefining design paradigms, you're redefining uh, behavior, you're redefining how software and hardware interact together, and that's really that's really cool. Awesome. Yeah. Last question. Uh, I was just uh, kind of reflecting back uh, the other day, thinking about um, sort of these ten year journeys in technology mm-hmm. that have happened already in our life cycle, mm-hmm. in our lifetime, right? So you had. Um, it was just a little over 10 years ago that, that like the iPhone sort of, you know, debuted and sort of began this sort of decade long march of mobile. Right. And it's it's completely changed the world. Um, and then if you go back 10 years prior to that, it was like 97 to 2007 ish. And that was like the, the web, really. Right. And then prior to that, it was like mid 80s, right to mid 90s. That was the PC. Um What's your prediction for the next 10 years? What are we going to look, when, when, when we do the 10-year the anniversary of this episode here, like what are we going to look back and say, yeah. what, was this, what was this decade about, the next, next decade about? It's, it's going to be very unoriginal because I think it is starting to become accepted that AI will be the next 
kind of reshape the way fundamentally that we look at industries and look at interactions, at behaviors over the next 10 years, I don't see another fundamentally uh, impactful development other than AI. You know, something that really is as big as the web or bigger than the web to some extent. Uh, it's gonna change. So to say AI is, is probably a cop out, but every single industry, every single product, every single interaction you're gonna have with the real world or the digital world is gonna be mediated in some shape or form through artificial intelligence. Um, and so I simply can't think of an, something that is more fundamental than AI. And so 10 years from now, I fully expect that we will be talking about it like things like we were talking about the web, where it's like, oh, right. man, I went online today with my 56K <laughs> modem or whatever. 14.4, I think, was the first right. one. I can remember. Actually, no, I don't even think 14.4 was. I think 9,800. Anyway, back in the day. So you remember getting online. It was a big deal. Like AI is, seems like a big deal today, but it's just going to be part of the connected fabric of what we do every day. Uh, 10 years from now. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you actually went online, right? Yeah. Right. You weren't always online. You that's went right. online. And I think that's actually even true. I think it's really mobile, which actually changed that. Now you're you're literally always online, yeah. right? Uh, and um, I think that makes sense. Like right now yeah. we think about, oh, you're adding AI. What does AI add to this product? Well, I think probably in, in 10 years, it's just going to be core yeah. to yeah. everything. It's not exactly. something you add. It's just built into the products we use. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly right. Um, and, you know, and that's why I, I love fast, I love hearing stories about AI. You know, when we travel, I am I am one of those people that do talk to the person sitting next to me. And I, I just love hearing stories about how AI is finding its applications in manufacturing or in biochemistry or in uh, nuclear physics or just the amount of applications that I'm seeing of AI is just ridiculous. And so uh, it is nice to, it's nice that in our lifetimes, we can see these massive paradigm shifts happen decade after decade. I know. It's a pretty crazy feeling yeah. to, to be able to reminisce about not being on the web and then being on the web and then, you know, the mobile interaction. So, so yeah, I, I fully see AI going to be, uh, AI is going to be one of those things going forward. All right. Very cool. Um, Shri, thanks so much for, for joining me on the podcast here. Anything you'd like to plug? Anything I'd like to plug? I mean, it's not a plug as much as my curiosity I'm starting to get more interested in the intersection of biology and computation. So nothing, nothing firm yet, but just curious about kind of where that element of uh, computing is going. So on the one side, computation is going into, you know, quantum computing is driving a lot of interesting capabilities that we never thought about before. And on the other side, biological computing has been around for a long time as a concept, hasn't really done anything. So I'm just keeping my eye out on, on those areas and trying to see when, if any, uh, you know, what's happening and what's going on there. So if anybody has uh, links or, you know, any of your you know, listeners want to uh, shoot me a link or kind of reading material around things that are cutting edge, I would love to learn more about kind of the intersection of biology and computing. Gotcha. And what's the way, best way for people to reach you? Like, are you on social media or you, <laughs> yes. email or what's the best? Uh, email is probably best. Um, you can email me at shriram.total at gmail.com. Um, you know, I would, I'm not very active on Twitter. Uh, and uh, so email is still probably the best way to do it. All right. Sounds good. Uh, maybe we'll have you back in a, in a, to, for a future episode to talk well, about not your... for 10 years. We don't have to wait 10 yeah, years. Yeah, we don't have to wait 10 years, but we'll, we'll yeah. have you back maybe to talk about some stuff, some stuff around the the computation biology side. I think that's, uh, I don't know much about it, but uh, it sounds uh, sounds transformational for sure. Yeah, we'll see what goes. Yeah, thank right. you. Appreciate it. All right, it. sounds good. Thanks. Cool.